Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots-on-the-ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I am Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibilities, and how all of these interact and mesh with each other. So the Jackson Center's program theme for this year is Democracy on Trial, and we are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both here in the United States and globally. These are not new questions. Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy during his tenures as the United States Attorney General, United States Supreme Court Justice, and as the Chief United States Prosecutor at Nuremberg. So during this year, we will be convening conversations about democracy, U.S. and global institutions, voting rights, the United States Supreme Court, human rights, and much more. This year, there is only one tea time each month on the fourth Thursday, and we hope the programs inspire you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways to make change in your communities. And for those of you watching this live, Remember, you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. Today, I am thrilled to have Professor Atiba Ellis with us. He is a professor of law at Marquette University Law School. His research focuses on voting rights law with specific attention to how varying conceptions of the right to vote exclude voters on the margins. He has written about the economic entry barriers posed by voter ID laws, felon disenfranchisement laws, and the theoretical effects of the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, the impact of the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, and related topics. His research focuses on voting rights theory and how ideology affects the scope of the right to vote, as well as critical legal theory and legal history. Professor Ellis, thank you so much for joining us for tea today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now I have my tea, so I'm excited to take a sip and get started. Perfect, perfect. So I want to, I always like to start off our conversations with a little bit of an orientation for our audience. And so I thought what might be a good place to start is you have been writing on and researching voting rights for an extensive period of time. And so I would love for you to give sort of a global concept of when we're talking about voting rights, what do we really mean by that? So I think the starting point is to think about the individual and what exactly they get to do as part of 
the United States in, and America's democratic republic, if you will, right? I mean, in a sense, we start with the notion that in terms of our constitutional structure, America functions like a democracy, but is built like a republic in the sense that we have states and those states conduct elections and they get, and those elections serve to choose everyone from the president of the United States, the head of the federal government to members of Congress to state representatives, whether it be your governor or your alderman or your dog catcher, right? If your dog catcher is elected. So in that sense, the right to vote can be broken down in along a number of dimensions, right? I think the one that we think about most and we have the most visceral feeling about is the right to participate in elections, right? The right to be able to go, register, vote, and have your vote counted in a free election that is conducted fairly, right? And then there's another issue in terms of the value of that vote, right? It, it's not just our individual votes and our ability to participate in that election. It's does my count does my vote count the same as my neighbor or the person in the next electoral district or in the next state? You know, and and the way our districts get structured raises those kinds of questions. And then, of course, there is the right under the First Amendment in, in terms of speech and engagement, which sets the boundaries of political discourse. The idea is, of course, elections are about choosing from those who are willing to step forward and run, who gets to be my representative, whether it's the president or my governor or my dog catcher, right? And so elections cost money and of course, with money comes temptation. And how do we manage the problems of money while allowing people to freely express their views? That ranges from everything from corruption to the management of the system. And in all of these instances, the big question is what, at least from my scholarly perspective, what role should the courts play and managing these things. And certainly I've alluded to the First Amendment. There are a number of other constitutional provisions that refer to voting rights, either directly or indirectly. And, and so this forms the constitutional scheme. Now, the thing I love to point out to people when we talk about the big scheme regarding the right to vote and, it, and these components, right? The right to participate, the right to have your vote counted, and not be gerrymandered out of, to the point of being valueless, the right of around the First Amendment, all of these things. And, and I actually should add to that list, the anti-discrimination idea, right? Since Reconstruction, we have had constitutional amendments designed to prevent discrimination in voting on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of the ability to pay a poll tax, on the basis of age. So these set the boundaries. And yet, and here's the irony, stop and think about it. If you look at your constitution, 
what you'll notice isn't there. In the federal constitution is a provision that actually spells out what the right to vote actually contains in, a, in an affirmative manner, right? I've already alluded to the idea that it's in the constitution that states generally run federal elections, that we shouldn't discriminate. And even the ideas of equal protection impact how we define the right to vote. But there is no sentence in the constitution that says the right to vote means X. And states have generally filled that gap. In every state, there, most of it is in state constitutions, although there are a few statutory provisions in some states. But every state has defined what the right to vote means, what it means to be to qualify in order to register to vote, how registration runs, how elections are governed, right? So this is the basic lay of the land, if you will, about elections. And it's actually a really controversial point that there is no federal definition. There is no U.S. constitutional definition of what the right to vote is which is in contrast to many other countries around the world where there is in their constitution extensive detailed directives about what the right to vote is and how it is to be carried out. Just to pick two examples I'm very familiar with, there is a whole chapter of the Brazilian constitution to those points. And Australia has an entire statute regarding elections that governs all of the states in Australia. But there is no such thing in terms of a comprehensive, definitive notion of that in the U.S. federal constitution. I mean, there are statutes like the Voting Rights Act and the Help America Vote Act and the National Voter Registration Act that define bits and pieces of it. But in a sense, the right to vote as a legal structure in the United States is very diffuse and decentralized, if you will. We seem to, I think, you know, in reading some of your articles and in preparation for, for our conversation today, we seem to think of our voting rights in more of an exclusionary framework as opposed to an inclusive framework. So where it's more about who we are trying to keep out from voting rather than the, perhaps the, I would say that your, you know, your theory is the voting should be as inclusive as possible. And I think that a lot of where we feel as if we are trying to exclude people is for whatever reason, there's a, there's something protective. Like we're trying to protect something lately, just in the last few elections, I feel like it's, we're trying to prevent fraud. So we're trying to protect the system by preventing fraud. And therefore, we are trying to make it harder to vote. And I feel as if that is the inverse way that we should be thinking about it. I, I you know, I, the facts are showing us that the last several elections have been amongst the most secure in the in the history of the country. And even though there is a little bit of fraud in almost every election, there is almost, to my knowledge, there is rarely enough fraud to actually change the results of an election. So, you know, so is it, are we, are we, are we fearful of the wrong things? Mm. I think we are. I think in a sense that the noise that is the fear of, you know, the fear of the other, to put it just quite simply, this has come to dominate 
these debates around elections and particularly in the last couple of decades when we talk about how to create a structure so that people can engage, we've ended up worrying more and more about security on the belief that our elections are endangered by some other, or that even if one doesn't point to a specific other, the idea that our elections are in danger because we worry, you know, we fear the potential other. Yet, you know, this this sort of fear idea. I mean, in a way, the way I think about this is that it has a long historical pedigree that American democracy, such that it is and such that it was, has been defined from the beginning by, I like to think about it in terms of worthiness, right? That the idea is that there are people who are worthy of exercising the franchise and those folks should be included and the others, the, the threats, the, the, to use the words of an Alabama disenfranchiser who was reported on by C. Van Woodward in his majestic work, Origins of the New South, these folks were called vicious. So as if there's a virtuous voter and a vicious voter, and that the vicious voter needs to be excluded, and the virtuous voter needs to be included, right? My argument in a lot of my work has been, this has been the enduring and continuing problem of American democracy. And so let me just draw the line of that. Even during colonial times and in the early days of the Articles of Confederation and then the ultimate early American Republic, there was one line typically drawn in most states, which was that one had to own property in order to vote. And imagine, and I don't have my inflation calculator with me, but if you imagine a requirement of owning $500 worth of property and the ability to demonstrate one's you know, proof of ownership of that property in say 1800, you could imagine that that's a significant amount of money today. I am guessing in at least you know, the upper tens of thousands of dollars in 2021 dollars. But my speculation aside, that fact, in an agrarian society where cities were the exception and most citizens of the United States and other persons, and I'll get to that in a moment, were very diffuse, that drew a line. I mean, and the rationale for that line was that people who are making decisions about society should have an investment in it, a stake in society. This was the rationale in the 19th century. Now, certainly, this excluded probably most everyone except the wealthy, and those wealthy persons typically were male and typically were white. And so the de facto truth was that most people of African descent, most Native Americans, most women who were either among the property lists or were considered property themselves mm -hmm. would be excluded by definition, right? And of course, if we think about women as property, this was 
basically true until the early 20th century because legal status meant that a woman could not act on her own in her own legal capacity except with the approval of her father or her spouse mm -hmm. and i could spend the rest of the hour talking about the legacy of slavery in this context but suffice it to say that slavery defined africans in america in a significant way and particularly in relation to the franchise by which i mean they were excluded from it because of their status as property and note the irony there that property holding included enslavement and you know we could walk through the original constitution and think about its democratic ramifications, but of course the most famous of which is the three-fifths compromise, right? Which actually took that fact that enslaved Africans were treated as property and used it as a way to bolster political representation for slaveholding states. So in a sense, that was the original gerrymander. So given all that, there is an interesting shift between you know, the early days of the Republic and the Civil War, which is that property restrictions were more, were being more and more disfavored with the rise of urban society in America, right? People moved to cities, people had jobs and had stable incomes, and thus proof of property ownership was not necessary. And so there was this movement beginning with say Jacksonian democracy and moving into the urban era from the 1820s to the 1850s. Just quickly putting out different Jackson. Yeah. What? Different Jackson, <laughs> Andrew Jackson, not Justice Robert yeah. Jackson. But beginning with Andrew Jackson and his sort of populism of the early 19th century, there was this movement towards universal white manhood suffrage. And I say white because there was moments throughout the 1830s and 40s where state by state, the choice was made to expand the franchise beyond the limited property model. But ironically, part of that deal was assurances that people of African descent would be excluded from the franchise. So towards mid, 18th century, you saw more and more explicitly racial rules around voting that basically saying white men could vote and no one else. And then if there were any doubt, the holding of Dred Scott v. Sanford made clear that no person of, no African person could exercise the rights of citizenship across the board. And so, and it is also worth mentioning that given the history of treaties and the treatment of Native Americans, Native Americans technically weren't citizens of the United States and thus were also excluded in that way. Now, all of this changed with the Civil War, and this gets to a big theme of the push and pull between exclusion and inclusion, right? Expanding the lens of who's considered worthy. Now, certainly the Civil War wrecked the political economy of slavery, and then the 13th Amendment abolished it wholesale. And then the 14th Amendment guaranteed equal protection of the laws, including laws regarding voting, 
But Section 2 of the 14th Amendment included a provision that basically said states that disenfranchise will have their representative apportionment in Congress diminished to the extent that they disenfranchise eligible voters in their state. And the one caveat to that idea, an idea that's never been actually exercised since it was written in 1868, the one caveat to that idea was that persons convicted of crimes would not count to that number in terms of penalizable disenfranchisement. But of course, those protections weren't enough. And the short version of what is a very complicated story is that the Reconstruction Congress, the Reconstruction Republicans, basically decided that there needed to be an explicit protection regarding race. And, and part of this complicated history was the fact that the first drafts of the 15th Amendment could have been read as a universalization of the right to vote across the country, right? And there was also talk of ensuring the right to vote for all people, notwithstanding gender or race. But what we end up with is an amendment that simply protects black men from voting discrimination by its terms. And we have this moment in reconstruction up until 1877 when reconstruction ended where black freed blacks were able to influence elections in Congress. Of course, the catch here is that that was protected by the presence of the Union Army in the South. But from the end of Reconstruction forward, a movement was set afoot to help, once again, hyper-regulate the franchise. So we talked about poll, well, we haven't talked about poll taxes yet. Let's talk about them now. The poll tax was initially one of the ideas about liberalizing the franchise, right? Instead of a property requirement, we asked folks to pay poll taxes. But poll taxes were mobilized in the 1880s and 90s and up until their abolition in the mid-1960s to, in essence, create a cost of voting that would be so high for the poor, who were likely African-Americans and some poor whites to exclude them from the franchise. And that poll tax requirement was layered on with literacy requirements. You had to be able to read in order to vote. You had to be able to demonstrate your understanding of anything that the registrar asked you to explain, including the provisions of the constitution. Have, or maybe you had to be able to recite some provision of the constitution, or you had to or the registrars, particularly in the South, had the discretion to ask whatever test they wanted to ask of you to qualify to vote. So questions like, how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap became popular among registrars. And so ultimately this unfettered discretion motivated by that vicious voter mindset that I referred to earlier became the means of exclusion, right? It became another scheme to determine who was eligible, who was not. And usually this story is told about the South and Jim Crow and the express racial apartheid there. But it's also fair to say that 
a version of this also played out in the North, maybe not with all of these explicit exclusionary practices, but those levers of registration requirements and registrar discretion and certainly devaluing the vote. And one other thing that's worth telling at this point in the story is voter intimidation and voter violence were all tools to exclude those who were deemed unworthy. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to dwell a moment on violence because I, to jump ahead in our story, it's worth reflecting on the fact that January 6th, 2020 happened. You know, a group of supporters of the then president sought to overthrow the election. And even though some might say this was legitimate political discourse, my own view is that these folks sought to engage in a riot in order to stop the transition of power, right? The most open and naked form of opposition to the rule of law that I can think of and in the 21st century. But if we look back to the 19th century, there was a Supreme Court case called United States versus Crookshank. In constitutional law, Crookshank ends up standing for the notion that certain federal criminal laws cannot have limited scope. And that Congress at the time had only so much power to engage in enforcing the Reconstruction Amendments. But the background is about voter intimidation and the effort to subvert an election. Put very briefly, Crookshank was about an election in Louisiana where African-Americans engaged in voting along with white Americans. The result was favorable to one party. The other party didn't like the outcome. And this led to a riot of whites attacking Blacks and the, well, really the interracial group. And this is called the Colfax Massacre. And over a hundred people died in that massacre. And so a number of the ringleaders were then indicted under the reconstruction statutes of the time, typically called the Force Acts, um, for committing this crime against an election. And because the Supreme Court threw it out, you know, the scope of reconstruction was limited under these rules. But my takeaway from all of this is that this is probably the most famous example of a riot being used to upturn an election. And in a way, when we situate a lot of our conversations around the history of racial apartheid in the United States, we have to think about the violence that was inherent in all of this. And, and in a way, there is this pattern of competing at the ballot box and also using rules to exclude fake voters who you don't believe align with your interest if you're the people in power. And so by intimidation, by regulation, and by political competition, folks get excluded. And then even if the election goes against the power structure anyway, because of the sheer force of the number of votes, 
then the last resort is violence. Right. This feels like obviously an inherent challenge in our system. You know, our the system has been set up really that you have to be in power for so long in order to really have any real power. You know, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about Congress and 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 committee structures and things there more specifically. And yet, so there is very much a desire to preserve your power once you have attained your power. And that I think gets to, and you wrote an article last October talking about the need for truth-telling basically around elections um, and that this goes beyond like typical rhetoric that we see around elections of some of the hyperbole and some of the bombasticness, mm-hmm. but that, and to, to use your, your January, to follow on that January 6th example, that is there an obligation that there is at least a, mini- a minimum level of common understanding and common conversation to ensure that truth is being told about the process, about the results, about the the forward steps, um, and you know, for most Americans, the first thing they say is, "Well, the First Amendment says you can say anything you want to say," which obviously is a little reductive. But uh, how do we how do we balance that? I mean, where where are you suggesting we, we draw this line between what is part of the process and where we need to preserve the process? So yeah, I wrote that article. And I also had the opportunity to write a blog post, interesting enough, for a symposium called Lies and the First Amendment, which is sponsored by the Knight Foundation at uh, Center for the First Amendment at Columbia University Law. So I've been thinking about this a little bit. Yeah, there is this obligation to tell the truth. And, and, And I mean, obviously, part of my insight here is that there is this truth about intimidation and hyper-regulation and violence that lays behind our idea of democracy. But in terms of drawing the line, under traditional First Amendment doctrine, doctrine, it becomes very difficult, right? The, well, I can say everything and anything that I want notion within the sphere of politics, though reductive, and there are many scholars who would call it reductive, but they also recognize that this is kind of foundational law, right? The, the court has said again and again in political law-related cases that the highest value when it comes to campaigning is to have a First Amendment view of we can exchange whatever ideas we want about the merits of the politics, right? I can campaign and say most things that I want, the hope being that the marketplace of ideas would call me out for my lies and my overstatements and my misrepresentations, and that the voters who disagree with me will send me home as rather than swear me in. Now, I think that the lies about the merits are different than the the lies about the process, right? What we see today and what I would go so far as to reckon as a rhetorical and ideological, and as we saw on January 6th, an actual physical attack on the systems themselves 
all driven by a bad idea, this voter fraud idea. And I think that though that kind of speech that poses a clear and present danger to election infrastructure, in essence, ought to be controlled like other speech that poses a clear and present danger to other things that we would consider critical infrastructure, right? To take as an analogy, you know, if we took, say, a power plant, we, we have laws against anti-terrorism regarding critical infrastructure. You know, no one would say, well, my right to own weapons would allow me to blow up a bridge. I would argue, and, and this is, and other scholars like Rick Hazen have made similar arguments that, you know, elections are critical infrastructure. Our right to vote and the process through which our votes get made into effect bind us together as a democracy. And because of that, there should be some level of protection. Now, I realize that it's a difficult pill to swallow to say, well, we should ban certain speech that attacks election infrastructure. But, and I wouldn't go that far, but one of the illustrations that I think came out of the 2020 election was the fact that the courts demanded rigorous proof of the claims of voter fraud. And, and just to talk about voter fraud for a second, because I know we want to leave time for questions for the audience. So I do want to get that bit of my theory out. But you know, there has been this oft-repeated idea that there are illegal voters infiltrating our elections, or that the threat of these illegal voters means that we have to make our voting qualification rules more strict. Right. And I have called this a meme, which, you know, and I think of it like it's a cute cat picture on the Internet with the little words under it that make you feel nice and you want to pass it to your friends. And this is such a cute thing. In fact, my spouse and I share cat pictures every day, <laughs> particularly of our own cat, Lulu. But cat pictures are one thing. Ideas that marginalized by repeating the vicious voter myth are another. And all I was going to say was that this vicious voter idea, even if it's not explicitly racist or against immigrants or who have you, the notion of this threat and this fraud being exercised by certain groups repeats the same historical pattern that I laid out. Oh, there are these voters, they are a threat. We want to exclude them. Therefore, we want to make the rules more strict. And that idea evolved over the last five years into, oh, the establishment wants to help these vicious voters. Therefore, we can't trust the result. My guy won. And anybody who says different is part of the conspiracy. No proof, no evidence. But my point here is that the courts demanded proof. No proof could be shown. And in all the major court litigation around the 2020 election, no election result was thrown out. And I think that that strikes the balance. We must demand proof for restrictions, else we fall into the vicious voter lie 
and we end up repeating this worthiness dynamic all over again. I am reminded of a conversation I had with uh, someone uh, last summer and they, the conversation was around a program that we had run that they felt didn't address that people felt as if the election had not been secure. And I remember having this conversation saying the facts indicate that it was secure. The courts in the courts, numerous courts investigated the security of it and no evidence arose that indicated anything other than secure. And I struggle with, I don't know how to address the feeling then. So if, if the facts are there and the facts are showing that there was no fraud or that it was a secure election, how do we change the conversation around what I feel? And this is obviously a much, we're having this conversation in many, many realms right now. So it's not just, not just about the election, but I struggle with when the facts are no longer commonly accepted. What can we do about that? Yeah, this is something all of us struggle with. First of all, I think it's important to give this problem a name. And the name I've given it, I have given it is epistemic crisis, which speaks to epistemology, you know, the idea that there is a theory of knowledge and, you know, philosophers like to think about how to distinguish, and I wrote this down for today, so I wanted to look for a second. You know, it's the problem of how do we know, and in particular, what is justified belief versus what is opinion, and how should those two things count, right? And it's, and, you know, we rely on the notion that the elections were conducted openly. There are studies that demonstrate their reliability. The courts, as I and as both of us have noted, have unanimously said that this was a fair election. But that feeling, that opinion, I mean, the challenge is that we all need to share some level of objective truth in order to function as a society, right? We don't spend enough time thinking about how our common and shared understanding is actually what it is that binds us. We all, in a sense, share that same notion of fairness, that notion of what a democracy should include. But then the challenge we're facing is that those folks who feel threat, those feelings are governing people's beliefs and reactions, and they're making claims of invalidity based on those feelings. So these feelings are really challenging, but they're also really personal. And in some ways, I think that the feelings about an election outcome or some other matter of public policy, you know, we, we are all well familiar with lots of claims about not wanting to follow the law because of COVID or what have you. You know, I think all of those things tend to revolve around a theme of folks feeling some sort of threat to their identity, right? Some folks feeling threats to their sense of safety or well-being in one sense or another. In fact, the history of the Jim Crow and voting is rife with those claims of we have to protect against the vicious voter. The implication being those voters will wreck our society and take away our comfort. And in a way, the answer is counterintuitive. I mean, I'm a law professor and I want to run to the constitution and change it a bit. 
we can talk about that in a minute. Because <laughs> that's an easy process, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll get it done in an hour, right. But the real problem might be this underlying sense of discomfort that is internal about their identity, about their sense of safety, about their place in the world. I mean, I can't help but think that all this new generation of voter exclusion laws getting connected to and being generated by the resurgence of this vicious voter myth is all a, in a lot of ways about the changing demographics in society. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think the conversation ought to be about shifting focus. As much as we use laws, and I didn't even get to talk about the Voting Rights Act, but it's the perfect example of how we protect ourselves from our worst impulses by having a law that mediates those impulses in a way so that, they, that we prevent discriminatory effect, right? The Voting Rights Act did that, and, and folks might want to ask, we can have some conversation about recent Supreme Court decisions about the Voting Rights Act, but suffice it to say, those impulses remain with us and we have to be honest about that. But then as to your friend, and I have friends like that too, who feel this discomfort, sometimes the conversation is about, well, what's the discomfort about? We can use our relationships to talk about, well, why do we feel this threat? Why are we worried about fraud? And that can lean into a conversation about values. And I think one way out of this mess is to say, well, our larger values are still being protected, even though the demographics might be shifting in terms of where we are in American society, even though the outcome you wanted wasn't the outcome that happened. And, and you know, I often say that our value of democracy has security walking hand in hand with access. If we go too far in one direction or the other, we're losing what is at the heart of our democracy, the opportunity for people to participate freely and fairly. And reminds, that reminds me of a line in Justice Jackson's uh, Term in Yellow case in his dissent where he was taking the court to task a little bit for seeming to think that liberty and order were in opposition to each other. It feels, mm -hmm. it feels like a very similar concept to that. We have an audience question, so I want to uh, yes. turn to that. And it's, it's referencing back to uh, some of the changes to voting laws. Adrian is particularly curious as to your thoughts on mail-in voting mm -hmm. and what its likelihood is to um, to continue, um, and you know, is is that an area where we might need to be more concerned about security? A number of states have moved significantly, and I think one or two states moved almost exclusively to mail-in voting over the past couple of decades. And the evidence would suggest that mail-in voting, in and of itself, has remained highly secure. Of course, the challenge is this is mail-in voting approaches have become one of the rhetorical targets of this movement towards arguing that elections have become in, unsecure. 
So I would inquire as to the source of that worry and, 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 re- and set that in perspective with the evidence that mail-in voting has been largely secure. Also, you know, motivating a lot of this is that electoral integrity as well as physical safety to be a way of getting engagement by the electorate. And so there is a certain amount of need, I think, for novel approaches that bring more people in. Now, to be clear, this isn't to say that there isn't any fraud. And I mean, we said at the top of the broadcast that there is minuscule amounts of fraud in every election. I think that the place where we have seen the most fraud to the extent fraud exists, but interestingly enough, it has been captured at an almost 100% rate has been absentee ballot fraud, right? There, there is a risk when we come to mechanisms where ballots are left vulnerable and they can be manipulated. And in fact, you know, this was documented, I think, in the GOP primary in North Carolina in 2018. You know, several GOP operatives were caught attempting absentee ballot fraud to the extent that they had to throw out an election. So it does exist. And I think securing to documented threat is a theme that we should think about across the board. But I am, as you can tell, I'm suspicious about claims of lack of safety simply because there are certain political interests in claiming lack of safety. Mm-hmm. All right, we have another question from Emily. And she said she feels as recently there has been a push to get young voters out there. But this tends to be very difficult with school or work or other commitments. So she feels as if there's a huge generational voice that's being lost. Any thoughts on some ways to address that? Mm. Yeah, I do think that if you read the political science literature, it will tell you that young voters, you know, the very young and the very old are the ones who are the most at risk of having their voice lost, as you say. Participation among the young is challenging given the demands that you've noted. I think that the younger vote can benefit from ensuring that the forms of ID that they readily carry are included in the forms of identification eligible for voting. Also, you know, there has been a movement afoot of late. I've noticed here at Marquette. In fact, I had a conversation with a colleague yesterday that he informed me that where we traditionally had voting on campus that has been moved to off campus. That, of course, makes it very difficult. And the location of polling places, the ease of availability I mean, there are some folks who argue also for wholly online voting. I I mean, conceptually, that would make it very easy. But I think we're a long way away, at least a decade or more, from that becoming a realistic option because there are documented issues in terms of making online voting work. And then certainly with the clear threat that has been manifest of late in terms of Russian hacking, which is, ah, 
a thing to talk about on today of all days. Indeed. You know, so that sort of solution that would help participation is probably a ways off which isn't to say it isn't worth investigating, but I suspect it's those kinds of things that will make participation a lot easier, particularly for the young in the longer term. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I feel as if, well, it's probably more than just my feeling, but voting laws, as we've discussed, have always been very conservative. And so they are unlikely to lead in technology trends mm-hmm. and are, uh, you know, as, as often the law in general, will lag significantly behind those technology advancements just to give the opportunity to potentially fix all the things that could possibly go wrong or that could possibly make something less secure. So that's, it does not surprise me that we are a long way off from, yeah. from virtual voting. But, but, yes. but you, you put your finger on something in 10 seconds that it's taken me 45 minutes to say. I mean, a lot of this is about the conservatism of the law and and not so much the political conservatism, even though it does dovetail into that. But there is this kind of identity and ultimately kind of establishment preserving notion that comes about in terms of how we treat voting. And it gets to how we know who we are as a political community. And, you know, that sort of us versus them thinking, unfortunately, dominates a lot of human history. And and in a way, you know, I think it's worth it, especially in a talk with the Justice Robert Jackson Center, noting that this is a rule of law issue. I mean, as I suggested earlier, the, you know, you know, one function of the rule of law is to protect us from our worst impulses. And I think that us versus them instinct that becomes manifest in this sort of vicious voter myth um, that fuels all sorts of, I mean, just to pick out the voter laws of the last decade or so, you know, voter identification laws, voter purges, vote caging, the discourse about mail-in voting, and my personal favorite, Dropbox voting. With each of those, there's some variation of this is open to fraud, therefore we shouldn't do it. Uh, Claims that are unproved or underproved, but then it creates political motivation not to even try. And of course, in that world, if we can't even agree that I can drop it off in front of the courthouse. (laughs) Good luck getting an app. Right. (laughs) Very true. Yep. All right. So with our final five minutes, four minutes, I would like to move to the lightning round questions. I always, this is my favorite part of, of most of these conversations. So covered a lot of ground today. We've covered a lot of history. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? with regard to this issue? Like, is there something covert or something that is potentially a really big challenge or a really big opportunity that, that most people aren't talking about or don't know about yet? So I think it's been under-discussed. The violence inherent in the issue has been under-discussed. I mean, we've talked about January 6th, certainly, but there's lots of reporting that I think has been under-paid attention to in terms of these same folks who are angry at the process 
who are posing a direct threat through the process through ongoing, not just voter intimidation, and maybe even not voter intimidation so much as intimidating, intimidating elected officials from doing their jobs. And, and the fact that we have folks who run our elections on the state and local level, on the precinct level, in certain places they're being harassed and harangued and they are quitting, this is a big deal, right? And, and there's a certain level of protection that they ought to be furnished. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important issue. And it tags to how the rhetoric of fraud and this vicious voter myth enables people to their worst tendencies. And that should be you know, directly considered. What do you think are some of our greatest threats to democracy at this point? So in a way, a lot of what I've talked about is the historical roots of the modern day disinformation war about our political process. Our political process, our voting rights infrastructure specifically, is very sound, notwithstanding what I just said. Um, and the fact that this information combines with the apathy about voting and enables folks acting like a mob, you know, I think that this is the perfect storm that is the threat to the voting rights level of this concern. What are some of the greatest opportunities? Well, I think there are two opportunities. One is all of this fear that we were talking about and its historical roots in terms of fear of the other creates an opportunity to talk about who we are as Americans, first and foremost. And second of most, and I, we could spend a whole other hour on this, a lot of this is the rules being created by the partisans and as a political acts. And what we should be talking about is putting the rules beyond the reach of the partisans so that we can spend our political time talking about politics, because there is so much that we should be speaking about on the merits. And then we like to leave our audience with people to read, podcasts to listen to, movies, videos, whatever you think. So what would you recommend for our audience to, to read, to be thinking about, to be listening to? So there are several colleagues of mine in the election law world who have really interesting books coming out soon. Richard Hazen has a book on disinformation and its threats. Fernita Tolson has a great book coming out on the Constitution and protecting the right to vote prior to the Civil War. Gilda Daniels has a book that was published in 2020 on race and voting. My friend Jacob Eisler is in the late stages of writing a book about philosophy. And I'm in a book with a number of my election law colleagues on the Oxford Companion to American Election Law. We're finishing the manuscript this year and hope to publish it in time for the 2020 election. And finally, I should note, I, as another project, I'm working with a number of colleagues on, a, on the seventh edition of Derrick Bell's Race, Racism, and American Law. We are hoping to finish that manuscript this year in order to publish it next year as well. So forgive the self-promotion a little bit, but there's lots out there to read and think about around these issues. No, that was, that was absolutely perfect. Thank you. So to our audience, thank you very much for joining us for tea today. 
Please join us again in exactly one month on Thursday, March 24th at 3 p.m. for our next tea. And Professor Ellis, thank you so very much for, for joining us and sharing your thoughts today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And you know, thanks for the tea. <laughs> you have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.